Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this is episode number 28. Today in the show, we're going to be discussing a topic that's been weighing heavily on me over the past week. This is the story of my hunt for the buck known as Jawbreaker, and lessons learned from losing the deer. Alright, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. And I gotta say, for the first time ever, I'm actually not looking forward to recording this episode. In fact, I've kind of been dreading it. Um, But with that being said, me and Dan are here today to talk about whitetails, and so the show will go on, regardless (laughs) regardless of how I feel or how excited or I'm not am at this point. So, uh, so Dan, how are you? I'm I'm doing um, better than you, probably. Um, I'm not at work, and uh, a cold front. Well, it's not a cold front, but it's going to warm up tomorrow and Saturday. But a rainstorm. Uh, just c- kind of came through the area, and I'd rather be, no offense to you, because you're a great guy, Mark, don't get me wrong, but I, I'd rather be in a tree stand if I could. I don't blame you at all. It's funny, <laughs> you, you should have talked to me about this, because I wanted to hunt tonight, too. We could have we figured it out. <laughs> <laughs> it's just unfortunate my hunting property is an hour away, so I wouldn't have been able to anyway. Yeah, yeah, that's that does make things a little more difficult. But yeah, I got a little bit of a cold front, not, not much of a cold front, but... uh. A little bit of cooler temperature still tonight until it warms up over the next couple of days. So I was thinking there might be a chance of getting out, but uh, probably not. Probably going to be putting things on hold here for a few, three, four days. It's going to be in like the 60s and 70s actually over here. So yeah. I'm actually, uh, you know, from all the other uh, podcasts that we've done, I started following the moon phases a little closer. Yeah. And uh, I think today, tomorrow, and Saturday are supposed to be excellent deer movement days based on the moon phase. Interesting. So I am going to be hunting Friday night, Saturday morning, Saturday night, and Sunday morning. And, uh, um, you know, hopefully I see some movement and uh, that, that whole moon phase is intriguing to me. And I'd like to get a little bit more information and do my own research and and just get out even in these warmer temperatures, see if something uh, uh, moves. And I set up the first time I've ever set up a mock scrape this weekend. And I got a trail camera over by it, and I want to see how it uh, did over the past week. Nice. You'll definitely have some pictures on that. That has that tactic has worked wonders for me for getting for getting pictures. Yeah, you use it a lot. Yeah, pretty much every year for the last like three or four years, I've been making mock scrapes and putting my cameras on them, and um, like clockwork, that's where I'm getting pics. So I got one of those mag. Uh, it's the the brand name's Magnum, and you hang it from the tree, and it drips the scent down mm-hmm. just a little bit at a time. And uh, I just for giggles, I guess I bought one and put it up in a in a pinch point, and uh, that's easy to check, and we'll see. I guess we'll see what happens. So cool. Keep me posted. Yeah, I will. Um, I'm excited for you to get out hunting this weekend too. I don't think I'm going to hunt at all, but um, my buddy Corey just drove down to Southern Ohio this morning 
and he already and it's it's 4:20 Eastern time right now on Thursday for those listening in the future and he just texted me at four o'clock and said there's a really nice two-year-old ten-pointer chasing a doe around. So, you know that's a good sign that the younger bucks are are pushing them around. And uh, before you know it, in a couple days or a week or so, we're gonna start seeing some bigger boys on their feet. So, can you hey can you hear that? Hear what? The train, the rut train, a coming. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I wasn't sure where you're going with that. <laughs> No, um, is this the same property uh, where Jawbreaker was at? No, this isn't. He's actually on a farm about a mile and a half away on his own piece over there. So yeah. same same area, though. Oh, cool. Cool. With yeah. that said, I believe uh, we got some uh, some talking to do about uh, this whole jaw, Jawbreaker debacle that you, uh, that you had this past week. Yeah. Yeah, that's, uh, that's the main thing I wanted to talk about here today. Um, and it's why I'm much more bummed than I usually am on these podcasts. Um, you know, as, as a lot of you guys know from, you know, following Wired Hunt on the blog or on social media and stuff, I had a really, um, I had quite a hunt last week, got a shot at the buck I've been after for a very long time. And, um, the ending was not as happy as I would have hoped it to be. So today I thought we would walk through the whole story of Jawbreaker, the whole story of the final hunt and then what happened afterwards, um, and then kind of where we're at now and where how I'm moving forward. So that's that's the plan. Um, Dan, you know, feel free to, to uh, grill me as we go along if you've got any other questions and whatnot. And hopefully coming out of this, you know, hopefully there's some things that I can learn and maybe the listeners can learn from this hunt I had that can maybe make me a better hunter and, and hopefully help other people too. So that's that's my hope for all of this. Um, I'm going to kind of, I have to admit, I'll probably, um, this is my therapy session, so <laughs> I'm going to let it out. Um, it's still pretty fresh. It was just uh, one week ago um, from today, just about one week ago, that I had this whole thing go down. So still kind of working through it myself. But um, Let I'm me kinda... tell you something real quick. No matter the size of the deer, whether it's a giant buck a really giant buck or a smaller buck or even a doe, you, it, it really, you never really get over it. it especially if it's a, a caliber of buck like Jawbreaker was. I've, yeah. had, I've had two incidences now in my life, uh, last year and then once in 2010 where uh, I've, I've shared your grief, so to speak. Yeah. I think a little later I'd like to get some of your perspectives um, yeah. on some of these things given those experiences too. So, so yeah. Um, Do you uh, need to go grab some tissues or something? No tissues. This, no tissues. Sh- this should be a tissue-free podcast, but okay. I, I do have um, my beverage. Okay. And uh, today was a two-beverage podcast. So, oh, boy. So, yeah, we're going to... This is the real deal. <laughs> <laughs> two beverages. Yep, two-beverage podcast. So I guess with that said, Dan, yeah, you want me to get this story kicked off? Let's Let's hear about Jawbreaker. All right, so the story of Jawbreaker started last year. Um, I had been hunting in southern Ohio for a few years, hunting some private land that I'd gotten permission on, and had just been wanting to secure something a little more, um, just a better property where there weren't going to be other guys. We had some issues with a number of other guys hunting this original piece, and so I'd been on the search for a lease. Um, to make a long story short, I kind of fell upon this property with uh, 
an acquaintance of mine. I emailed him asking if he happened to hear anything. He just so happened to have heard of this lease like a couple days beforehand. Checked it out in end of July. This is very last minute because I've been looking for leases all summer. And lease after lease after opportunity after opportunity kept falling through. Um, so I ended up picking this one up at like end of July, early August. Um, we went down there, checked it out. Right away, I, I thought to myself, this is definitely something that has potential. And um, we bumped several really good deer when we were just kind of walking around the property. So right away, I, I was felt pretty good about it. Um, that said, we, we went in the next day. Like we saw it on Saturday. And Saturday night, we signed a lease contract. Sunday morning, we went back in with a couple tree stands and hung, hung a stand, or hung two stands, I think, and a trail camera. Then we didn't come back again until October 7th, I believe. Um, I'd wanted to come back and do a little more work or hunt earlier in the year or something like that, but just got busy with everything going on. And so we didn't get to go back till October 7th. It was a Tuesday, I think, and I took the day off of work. Or actually, I guess I didn't take the day off of work. At that point, I was doing my own thing. Um, we drove down, having never hunted it and only have, having walked it one day, and I went and set up a tree stand that night in an observation spot um, at the end of this finger of timber where there was kind of a thin finger finger of soybeans that cut into this big block of timber. And it created two fingers of timber on either side of that soybean field. So I set up a stand just basically to, to see a lot of area. I wanted to understand what was in the area, what deer were in there, how deer were using the property, blah, blah, blah. Long story short, within like an hour of sitting down, the first deer I saw was Jawbreaker. And he was just this giant, he looked like a big eight-pointer. He was actually a nine. He had like a one-inch G4, I guess it'd be, on one side. But basically, it's a huge framed eight-pointer. Really heavy mass, great time length, and just the biggest body deer I'd ever seen in the woods, personally. Um, he started out at the end of this finger of beans, and over the course of the next hour and a half, just slowly made his way closer and closer and closer to me. And so for like an hour and a half or two hours, I watched this deer come towards me. Um, and it was just one of the best encounters I'd ever had at that point. Just a really, really cool deer. Just I, I couldn't get over his body size. Um, in the end, he ended up getting to within 70 yards, but never quite closed. You know, that final 20, 30 yards I would have wanted to get a shot. So I couldn't get a shot at him. But that night, I dubbed him Jawbreaker. And we checked trail cameras that night after the hunt and had a bunch of pictures of him. So he was definitely a homebody on this property. So that was my first encounter with him. And ever since then, he's been the biggest deer I've been after across all my farms in Ohio and Michigan. And definitely the most mature deer and the biggest deer body-wise too. So he was top of my list, something a deer I was thinking about every day. Every time I went out to hunt, I was thinking, you know, where's the jawbreaker? What's the jawbreaker How, how doing? old was he? Yeah, so my, of course, you know, you never know 100% for sure, but yeah. about as sure as I could get ever on a deer. Last year, I'm pretty darn sure he was at least five and a half. Okay. I mean, his body screamed very, very mature. I mean, he had everything. He had just, just the biggest Brahma bull body I've ever seen on a deer. So he was at least five and a half last year. So my estimate was that this year, six and a half. So... Last year, like I said, had a lot of pictures of him, had that first encounter with him, hunted though all through the rut and never saw him again. And fast forward now to um, late November. It's November 24th, I think now. And uh, I came back for another trip. Um, I, I had a big rut trip during early November. I came back now late November and um, had actually, it was kind of a funny story for this day too. I wanted to spend some time with my wife. But I also really wanted to go down to hunt that weekend. 
So what I did is Friday night, I, I think we went out to dinner and watched a movie or something. And then I waited till she fell asleep that night, Friday, maybe it was like 1130 or midnight. And as soon as she fell asleep, I snuck out of the bedroom, threw everything in my truck, and she knew I was going hunting. So it wasn't like I was sneaking away without her knowing. (laughs) (laughs) I'm out of here. But it it was like I wanted to maximize my time to hunt as much as possible. So at midnight, I hopped in the truck and drove through the night to get down to my property by 4 a.m. or 4.30 a.m. or something so that I would have time to get changed, hike out to my tree stand, and I was in my stand by 5.30 in the morning. And I'm glad I went through all that work that day because I saw two different shooters. One of them was the other buck I've been after down there named Glenn. And then I saw Jawbreaker around like one in the afternoon. And I was sitting in the stand in a, interestingly now, I was sitting in the same stand that last week I got a shot at him from. Um, So I'm in that stand. I see this deer come crossing a wide open cut soybean field around one in the afternoon and pull up my bind. I was holy smokes, this jawbreaker. And he cuts across this bean field into this opposite finger of timber, across this little finger of beans from me. And this is an area where I had, had been hypothesizing that he was bedding. So he goes in there. I start to rattle. After he goes in the timber, I'm thinking, okay, I got to try something to get him across this way. So I rattled. He comes tearing out of that timber across this cut bean field, this finger, heads right into the timber where I'm at. And I'm like, shaking like crazy like holy smokes this big old buck's coming right to me i just rattled this son of a gun in he drops down into this ravine that's kind of right in between me and the field because i'm inside this i guess i I can describe this now because it'll make sense later but i'm on a little point of timber that extends out of a bedding area and that is this finger of timber that cuts into this bean field and there's a little ravine just over the side of the field. So there's the field edge, then it drops into like a 10-foot deep ravine, and then it pops back up to this little point that I'm on. So he comes off the field edge, drops in that ravine. I think he's going to pop back up onto my side and be within shooting range any second. But after a couple minutes, I realize he's stalled out in there. And eventually I see him pop back out on the other side in the field edge, walks down the field, and, and won't respond to any of my calls or anything. So that's encounter number two. Again, he's He's in my blood. Like, I've been thinking about this buck a lot, and now I just had this really cool encounter where I rattled him in. Awesome. Now, fast forward a week or two later, it's the opening day of gun season down in Ohio. I figured I should be there. I still hadn't filled a tag, so I'm sitting now in the tree stand that I hunted from the very first time I saw Jawbreaker. And long story short, around last light, he comes popping out of that opposite finger of timber once again. Pops out, heads across that cut corn, corn cut bean field and goes across the way. No shot, but another encounter. So those are my three encounters with Jawbreaker in 2013. I had a number of other pictures of him too, um, but never saw him or heard from him afterwards. So I'm sorry to interrupt, but did he, you think he lived on the property or was this on a, a different property that he was coming from? So I believe that most of the year between what I saw that year and what I saw this year, I believe that he spends a large amount of his time on my property. Okay. But there's a neighbor's property who doesn't allow any hunting, and he's got incredible cover, just a really awesome property, but no one's allowed back there. So I think he split his time between my farm and that farm. Gotcha. Um, and, and actually, there's another property nearby where I know a guy that had been seeing him as well. So he was, he was of course, spending his time elsewhere. But right. I was confident, um, especially after what I learned this year, that he was one of his main bedding areas was on my property. So we came back in February and March to do some shed hunting. I thought for sure I was going to find his sheds, but we did not. 
but I did really scour a couple of the what I thought were likely bedding areas, and I found some absolutely prototypical big buck beds, like everything that Dan Infelt talks about and all the different people we've talked about when it comes yeah. to bedding areas. I mean, perfect bedding area where he has got, this is the side of a ridge. It's a knob coming off of a ridge. He's got a big, like, seven-foot-wide circle that you can see that he's worn down. There's trees, big trees around it, all tore up from the last year. There's a down tree right behind him, so he's got a backdrop. And then he's looking down to this valley. So I'm thinking, I see this bed, and the first thing I said to myself is, that's Jawbreaker's bed. Like he, I, If ever I knew anything about deer hunting, I would say that he is bedding there, at least on occasion when conditions are right. Because he can get a westerly wind blowing over his back, smell anything behind him, see anything in front of him. So I, I stored that one in, my, um, in the hard drive in my head and knew I wanted to, wanted to find some way to hunt that site later on. So now fast forward to May, me and my buddy Josh, who hunts this lease with me, came down to go turkey hunting. We both killed turkeys. It was pretty cool. Shot two turkeys at the same time. It was a double. Um, we finished up that, and we decided we're going to hang some more stands. And I thought to myself, I want to hunt. I want to hang a stand as close as I can possibly get to that buck bed. And sometime in mid to late October, when that buck is still hanging out around home, I'm going to find a way to hunt that deer from that stand. So we went in there. I located that bed again and said, okay, what's the farthest, exactly the kind of things we talked last week about with Dan. I thought to myself, okay, how's where's, where's the closest I can get to this bed without being seen or heard? And so we hung that stand in what I thought was just a perfect setup. And this will be relevant as we, as we kind of move forward. So I hung that stand. We got out of there. Didn't come back again till August. Now we're there in August. I pulled, we had a couple of trial cameras running, pull that camera. And I had picture after picture after picture after picture of Jawbreaker. As we talked about a few weeks ago, it was like the most incredible trail camera pull I've ever had. Yeah. Um, like eight or nine different shooter bucks. But the one that was on there probably the most was Jawbreaker. Um, just all over that camera. And he was just a horse. I mean, I thought he was a giant back in 2013. But this year, he was just stupid big. I mean, you saw the pictures. He just looks right. ridiculous. I love it when they turn, like they kind of turn their neck and it's just like fat rolls hanging oh, off their neck. He He's so fat. He's a fat. <laughs> <laughs> he's so fat. So now that's August. We go home. We do not come back to the property till opening day in Ohio, which is September 27th. We hunted opening day and the next night um, did not see any bucks, but I did pull the trial camera. And again, lots of pictures of Jawbreaker. And this time, he's on two different cameras, and he's the only shooter buck we have on camera still In uh, once he's been hard, once all the deer went hardhorn, so in, in September. And we had several daytime pictures of him. So I had several, a number of daytime pictures of Jawbreaker using this area just outside of this presumed bedding area where I thought he'd be. And then I got a couple other pictures of him in another location later in the middle of the night. So I was kind of putting all these pieces together, and again, it's reaffirming my belief that this bedding year that I believed was his, I really think it's his. So that reaffirmed that belief. Now I leave on the 28th of September, and our plan was not to go back to hunt till either the end of October, possibly this coming weekend, which is the 25th and 26th, um, or if not that, we wouldn't come back until November 5th for our big rut hunt. So now that takes us to October 14th. You and I were here on the podcast, and we were recording a podcast with Dan Infault, 
who we've already yep. mentioned here. Um, I'm sure all of you listeners remember his two episodes on the show. He's awesome, and he talks a lot about hunting buck bedding areas and how that can be especially successful this time of year during mid-October. So, excuse me. So now it is October 14th. We record a podcast with Dan. We talk about this thing a lot. These ideas are running through my head. I'm thinking about this a lot. It's now October 15th. It's the morning. I'm sitting in my office writing an article, and it was a story um, here on the po- or here on Wired to Hunt uh, from Brett Joy. He's a guy who killed a really nice buck down in Ohio early in October, I think it was, and we had the story on the website, and long story short, his basic hunt was a cold front had passed through. He thought he knew you know, these conditions were right. He went in there, and he was able to get this buck on his feet before dark. And for whatever reason, while I'm watching, uh, or while I'm reading this article and watching the video, there was a video on Midwest Whitetail of it. It just got me thinking, like, man, you know, that's happening right now in Ohio. There was a little bit of a cold front that pushed through. Um, I really feel like I know where Jawbreaker's bedded. Um, I wanted to try to get a hunt on him near his bedding area before the rut because last year during the rut he disappeared. Um, so I'm sitting here at like nine in the morning, and my mind just starts racing. I'm like, maybe I should go. I pull up weather.com, I'm looking at the weather, I'm looking at yesterday's weather, I'm saying, okay, yesterday it was 73, today it's down to 55, that's a pretty nice cold front right there, and there's a little bit of light rain, and oh man, south-southwest wind. That tree stand I had hung back in May to hunt Jawbreaker's bed could only be hunted with a south-southwest wind, because my assumption was that he would only use this bedding area when he had a westerly wind direction, because he wanted to get that wind over his back, so I needed something west. But if it was straight west, or if it was northwest, or even if it was southwest, from where that stand was, that wind would blow either towards him or towards one of the other areas where there's there should be deer, a number of deer bedded in this larger bedding area. So the only way I thought I could get away with it is if I had a south-southwest, or excuse me, south-southwest. So just enough west that he would still be bedded there, but enough south that my wind would blow up north of where he was at, and I could get in there safely. So I'm seeing all these conditions, I'm saying, wow. Maybe I just need to, I need to go for it. And usually I'm the kind of guy that I plan everything well ahead of time. So I know when I'm going to Ohio and two days beforehand, I'm starting to pack or I'm starting to make my plan or whatever. But here I am that morning and I'm thinking, you know what? I just got to go for it. So I went and talked to my wife and she's like, yeah, go for it. So I literally between 930 and 10, I ran around like a crazy person, like literally sprinting around my house, grabbing stuff, trying to pack my bags, trying to pack all my gear up, taking a shower, packing a lunch trying to get all this stuff together. I'm in the car by 10.05, and I'm hauling butt down the highway to Ohio to hopefully get there by 3 o'clock in the afternoon to sneak into the tree stand to kill Jawbreaker that night. I hope you obeyed the speed limits, man. It's really funny you mentioned that because, well, I did sort of obey the speed limits, but coming home after all this stuff happens, I came home, uh, I'll save this for later. Okay. Uh, just remind me to talk about the speeding thing a little later. <laughs> so, I'm going as fastly as I legally can down to Ohio. I get there in time. I get saddled up, sneak in there, perfect conditions, a little bit of light rain, a little bit of wind. I'm able to walk through the standing cornfield. Nothing's going to smell me. Nothing's going to see me. Nothing's going to hear me. I get up in the tree stand, and I'm pumped. Like I, I'm feeling about as confident as I ever have that I could kill a buck in the middle of October. Like I feel like he is there. Long story short, I didn't see a single deer that night. I did not see Jawbreaker. He did not go the way I wanted to. 
but still I felt really good about, you know, this was like a really, this, this was like a drone strike. Like I had a very targeted reason to be there. I had everything right. lined up and I thought I could go in for the kill and I did it and I pulled it off to a degree at least. Well, I didn't pull it off, but at least I didn't spook anything. I didn't muck things up. I was able to get in and out perfectly fine as far as I know. So that said, my plan was to go home or sorry, to go to the hotel room. I was going to work through the night, try to catch up on some stuff and then wake up early the next morning, drive home, get back to work, blah, blah, blah. It's the middle of October. I wasn't planning on hunting too hard. I was just going to get back into the swing of things. So I wake up in the morning, pack up my stuff, throw it in the truck, start driving home. I'm on the highway for about 20 minutes, 30 minutes maybe, and I get in a traffic jam, like standstill traffic, and I'm just sitting there. And now I'm sitting there, and my mind starts wandering, and I start thinking, man, what's the weather right now for here in Ohio? I look at the weather again. It's not too warm. The wind's not too bad. I start thinking, geez, I came all the way down here. Maybe I should try to give it one more shot. Like, what, you know, what's the worst I could do? So then I start thinking, okay, what's the what's the cost benefit analysis here? So what's the potential reward I could get of doing another hunt? What's the potential risk of doing another hunt down here? Um, long story short, I got to thinking, you know what? The wind's pretty good for me to still hunt that same bed where I think Jawbreaker is, but I just need to go to the other side of it. But maybe by going to the other side of it, I'll actually be catching where he was moving yesterday that I didn't see him. And with a straight west wind, he's even more likely to be bedded where I think he'll be because that's the perfect wind for him. I just need to get below it. So all these things are going through my head. I finally decided, you know what? Screw it. I'm going back. So I turn the truck around. I call my wife, explain to her what I'm thinking about doing. She gives me her blessing. I drive down to a coffee shop and burn some time there doing some work before I go hunt. And um, I actually post on the Wired Hunt Facebook page trying to get everyone's opinions on what I should do too. And um, luckily, the Wired Hunt Nation agreed with me. They liked the idea of staying around for another hunt. So <laughs> I, I look, I was reading through those. I'm pretty sure 100% of the people said to hunt. There were, there were a couple of uh, Debbie Downers who said no. Yeah, but <laughs> You just deleted them from your likes, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> No, but, um, but yeah, it was, it was good to see that everyone was, uh, was in agreement with what, what I was doing there. So head back around two o'clock, back to the farm, pack up again, head out to the tree. And now I'm, I'm hunting another stand, but like I said, same general bedding area, just on the backside of it. Took a really long route around to get there so that I would make sure that my wind wasn't blowing into these bedding areas to make sure I was staying away from you know any potential spot I might spook a deer. Um, so I eventually got to that tree stand and like I mentioned a little earlier, this is a stand that I'd hunted before when I'd seen jawbreaker. This is also a stand where my buddy Josh killed his big buck last year. And this is also the first tree stand that I'd hung last year. The day after I saw the lease, I saw this spot and said, yep, we need a stand right here. And my intuition was not too bad since now I've shot two deer out of her. So this stand, like I said, is on a finger that extends out of a bedding area excuse me, extends out of a bedding area and these deer take the bedding, they leave the bedding area, head down this finger, heading towards a bunch of crop fields to the south. So I'm hung up there expecting Jawbreaker to appear from my north and I have a west wind that's blowing my wind out across a valley behind me. So I sat there from probably 3.30 till 6.45 and I had not seen a single deer. So at this point, it's starting to get a little bit darker where I know I'm down to the last like 20, 20 or so minutes of, of daylight. And I filmed a quick interview talking about the fact that I hadn't seen any deer yesterday and I hadn't seen any deer yet today. So I was kind of feeling bummed about that, but hoping for maybe a little luck here in the last few minutes. I shot the camera down. 
And I just start, you know, start slowly scanning around me for a couple minutes. And as I scan to my right, all of a sudden, 20 yards away from me, my eyes registered deer. And then a second later, my eyes registered buck. And then I'm like, oh, that's a shooter buck. And then all of a sudden it hit me. Oh, my Lord. That's Jawbreaker. He's 20 yards away in the wide open right next to me. What he must have done was he must have been in that ravine that's next to me. And it was windy enough. I couldn't, you couldn't hear anything walking around. He must have been in that ravine and just popped up right out of that. And when I turned my head, he popped up right next to me, walked a few steps, and there he was. So he's 20 yards away, right in, in line with me. So I can't move. I'm frozen. I wait. I wait. He turns, starts walking back behind me, goes behind a tree. As soon as he steps behind this tree, I stand up. I start turning. I'm starting to turn. I grab my camera, I turn on the camera, and get it in the general direction that he is walking. Now, this area that I'm hunting, this little finger, it's got about a 40-yard wide clearing on the top of this point where it's grass and a handful of small trees, but it's relatively open and I can get shots. But as soon as he crosses this 40-yard wide clearing, he goes into the timber on the other side. So in my head, I'm thinking I need to get a shot at him before he gets to this other side of timber, and he's crossing like he's going to go back into the woods. So I get the camera on him. My bow is hung up on the opposite side of the tree. So it takes me a few seconds to get the camera on him. Now I have to do a 360-degree spin around the tree. I get there. I see, okay, he's not looking at me yet. Now I can reach for my bow. By the time I get the bow in hand, I'm ready almost. He has now crossed that entire clearing, and he is right at the edge of the timber, scratching himself about one or two steps away from being behind some branches. So at this point, he's about to take another step. I draw back, and as I draw back my bow, I let out a bleat to stop him because he's now stepping past these limbs. He's stepping right to the last spot I could potentially shoot him. And all this, you know, all this happens in like 15 or 20 seconds, you know. Um, as I draw back, I get to full draw. After I bleed, he stops. My peep sight didn't open. <clears throat> so now I'm messing around with my peep sight with the side of my jaw, trying to open up my peep sight. I finally get my peep sight opened. I get on him, and by this time, like I said, um, it happens so fast, and I'm worried if he takes one more step, I don't have a shot. Set the pins on him, let her go. I can see in my mind's eye, I see the arrow hit what looks like center mass on the deer up and down, but back. He bounds off about 40 yards with his tail tucked, stops, turns, and looks back at me. I zoom the camera in on him at this point, can see him. He looks at me for a few seconds and then bounces back off into the woods. So at that point, I know that I hit him, but I feel pretty sure that it's it's a back on him. Uh, I don't really know why the shot went back, um, but I know it's back. So I wait about half hour, 40 minutes, get down from my tree, go and retrieve my arrow. I found the arrow and some hair and a little bit of blood at the shot site. On the arrow, there's no stomach matter. There's no green stuff. There's no stink. Um, so I'm kind of surprised by that, and there's decent blood. So now I'm thinking, well, maybe I got a liver, maybe, maybe something like that. So... I decide either way, I'm going to sneak out of there. I'm not going to push it at all. If this deer is gut shot, I want to make sure to let him bed down and not be spooked. And hopefully I'll be able to come back in the morning. He'll be right there. So I sneak out of there the opposite direction, get back to my truck, go back to the hotel room. And so that's where things end on night number one. I'm going to stop you right there. Yes. Okay. So it was a pass through, right? It was. It was a pass through. Now, when you shot him, 
did he notice you at all? He never looked up at me. He never did he ever noticed. catch your scent? To my knowledge, no. I guess okay. absolutely not because when he ran away, it would have been not downwind at all. My wind was okay. blowing was blowing perfectly behind me. Gotcha, gotcha. So yeah, as far as I know, he had he had no idea it was there other than that, other than that little tick of the arrow. Yeah, gotcha. So, so yeah, I went back that night to the hotel room, and had a long sleepless night. Um, I had a friend of mine who was able to get some time off work the next day, who came down from Michigan to help me track him, and who also brought his dog, who he's been training to track deer. Um, this deer actually was this, or this dog actually was the one that was helping me find my buck last year too. Um, that found six shooter. So was hoping, uh, to have some, some good luck again with June bug. Uh, but went out there the next morning. I mean, long story short, we picked up blood right off the bat. It was very sparse. We tracked it for, at the time, I thought we tracked it about 300 yards, but later I went and looked at a map that had a key, and we actually only had blood for about 150 yards. And it was very sparse, just the occasional drop, drip drop here, a little smear against corn. Um, we tracked that buck down into that little ravine where he came out of, back up the other side to the cornfield, tracked it across the cornfield, and again, it's a thin finger of corn, tracked it across that finger to that opposite finger of timber where I'd seen him come in and out of several times the year before. I thought he would be bedding, and I thought that was one of his secondary bedding locations was on this, the end of this finger. So I thought for sure he was going to be in there bedded down dead somewhere. Um, but we lost blood. The dog just started losing confidence in the trail, and uh, we just searched that thing up and down. After we lost blood and after we lost the trail and, and had exhausted all options there, we started grid searching that finger of timber, thinking he'd be in there because it's really thick, really good, um, but nothing there. So we, at that point, said, okay, we just need to start walking some likely spots. So we just kept walking around there. This takes us till about 2 o'clock, maybe in the afternoon of that first day. My buddy Andy has to go home. He takes off. And this is where your help kicked in, Dan, um, which I really appreciate. You had gotten in touch with your buddy John Mulligan from Wicked Tree Gear. And John got in touch with me, and he offered to come up to help because he lives in Kentucky, just over the border. So... John came up, which was awesome. I really appreciated it. And he helped me grid search a few more areas. We decided to start walking what we thought the most likely bedding areas might be that if he was injured, where would he go to bed down? So we grid searched a number of bedding areas and we checked all the different water sources we could get to and just scoured all the likely spots um, where he potentially could go. We looked for tracks on the edge of the cornfield, trying to find where he might have cut in if he did. Um, but we, we looked and looked and looked till um, just about dark on that night and that was Thursday I believe and uh could not find anything so at that point I started thinking you know is there any chance that another dog might be able to help out with the situation and at this point I'd been posting a lot of things on Wired to Hunt and a number of people said hey you should get in touch with this guy get in touch with this guy get in touch with this guy so I started calling a bunch of different people talking to some different blood trackers saying hey you know here's the situation is there any use in having you know another dog come out do you think another dog might be able to pick it up and long story short, most of the guys said, yeah, we probably still could. Well, one of our readers from Wired to Hunt is a professional blood tracker with his dog, and he offered to come down and help out. So Jared and his dog, Chloe, came down the following morning to pick up the trail again. And so this is now day two. 
We start out bright and early, first thing in the morning, start from the very beginning, start trailing again, follow the trail past where me and Andy had lost it, continue into the cornfield, and we get in that cornfield, and again, things just get haywire there, and we couldn't really get locked on. So at that point, we, we kept trying and trying to get locked on, couldn't get locked on for the dog, so we hopped over to the other side of the cornfield at the most likely spot where we thought he might have exited. At this point, we're, we're assuming that he's still moving based on what we've seen and, and, and how far the search has gone. We got to the other side of the cornfield. Chloe seemed to pick a track up back up again, got really excited, seemed like she was on it. We tracked and tracked all through this property, and this was actually my neighbor's property at this point. Um, we had permission to go there and search. And to make what was a very long day short, we tracked for another like eight or nine hours, eventually started just circling through every different possible likely area. Eventually around like six o'clock, five or six o'clock, Jared had to go home. He took off. I went back in there and I walked every other square inch of space I could possibly get my hands on to um, until dark. Now I've been searching for just about 24 hours in the field and, um, finished off day two there and was never able to find another drop of blood never was able to find a bed um was not able to recover jawbreaker yeah that's heartbreaking isn't it yeah i think that's um that is the understatement of the year yeah and there's not not too much anybody can say or do to to make it better um i just know that it does that experience that you went that you just went through will actually make you a better hunter. And I'll tell you my experience real quick. When I when I shot or when I had my encounter with shipwreck, he was and without having to go into a ton of detail, he's a, a, a buck that I a giant buck that I had been chasing for I think four or five years. And I finally had an encounter with him within range, 22 yards. I shot, shot him and he ran off, tracked him, no blood or there's blood. And then it stopped and we did our grid search thing. Couldn't find him. I came back the next day with a whole bunch of people. Couldn't find him. Then, uh, on the half of the third day, I, I gridded some more, no go. Well, he ended up living and he came back, which last year, when I shot my buck, I I was more calm and more collective during during all my other buck encounters after shipwreck. That big buck had made me still get excited about seeing a big deer, but not get buck fever near as bad, if that makes any kind of sense. Yeah. So so I don't know. It's it's definitely one of those things where you know, we, I said it, you said it, everybody else has said it. If you're not, if you don't have an experience like that, you haven't been hunting long enough. Yeah. It's, uh, it's kind of funny, you know, last week on the pod, I think it was last week or maybe it was the week before that we were talking about, you know, hitting a deer and wounding it and not recovering it. Yeah. And, uh, to that point, I, I had, um, I'd hit a doe before a long a ways back with my muzzleloader and wasn't able to recover her, but um, I never hit a buck or hit any deer with my bow and not recovered it. Um, and now this happened, you know, just after we had that conversation. So a little bit ironic that this has now happened to me, and um, 
Like you right. said, I know it, it happens to everyone eventually. And um, I think it's just a matter of learning from it and being able to move on from it and making sure, like you said, that it does make you a better hunter. Um, but God, I'll tell you what, that, uh, that day after, so the Thursday, the day, the first day where we looked all day and couldn't find it, I was getting, you know, really upset. And after day two, when it all finished up and I had to come home, um, man, that was just the, it was a rough couple of days there where it was just all I really thought about to keep on looking at the video and looking at the pictures and thinking about it and, you know, overanalyzing stuff. And just, I mean, for so many different reasons, this is incredibly upsetting. Um, yeah. you know, first and foremost, right. I just wounded a deer that of course, anytime you take a shot at a deer, you want that to be as quick and as quick and ethical as you possibly can. And to know that I hit a deer poorly and that that deer might live for a longer period of time or suffer, um, or, you know, die of a, a less than ideal circumstances. That's awful. And the worst thing I, um, I, I keep thinking about him, you know, 10 days later, two days later, you know, suffering, laying down, getting all sickly and infected. And it, it breaks my heart, um, for any deer, of course, for any deer, I would feel the same way, but especially for this deer, he's, I mean, he was the King. He was just this incredible specimen of a deer that I've never seen a deer like this in my life that I've been able to hunt and to experience and to have learned and gotten to know this deer to a degree to have done that, um, to him, I just feel horrible. Um, so from that standpoint, it's, it's awful. And then, and and then you look at just from a purely now, this is not as important of course, but just looking at, you know, I, I'd put all the pieces together. This is the biggest buck I've ever gotten a shot at. He was, you know, over 160 inches, a six and a half year old deer, the most mature, biggest bodied, um, you know, this would be my, to this point, my buck of a lifetime. And I had put all the pieces together. I'd finally done all these things right that I had been trying to do right for years. And it all, it all came together. And to, and then to then see it, you know, slip through my fingers because of just that last couple seconds. And, and it happens to so many of us eventually. But that in itself is, again, painful. Yeah. Um, and then, you know gosh, I get all these other weird pressures, you know, given that, that I'm trying to make a living from these types of things. Then I, I feel like I let my wife down. Like I called my wife that night and I, I started apologizing to her. Like, I'm just so sorry. Like, yeah. like I, she lets me go and do all these things all the time. She lets me take all this time away and, um, she's so supportive of it all. And then when I finally do have an opportunity, um, you know, I blew it yeah. and, so all these things have been going through my head and, and I'm in a lot better spot today than I was five days ago even. Yeah. Um, but for a while there, it was, it was a, a real low point, but at the lowest point for me as a hunter, but I, I was fortunate to have a lot of people like you and other friends, um, other hunters that have, you know, taken the time to chat with me and just give me a lot of encouragement. And, um, I think it's been therapeutic just to talk about it and all those things too. Right. So. So that's kind of, that's well, kind of I'll tell you, I tell you when you were telling your story and I'm guilty of this too, just like several other people are over the, uh, throughout the U S who film their hunts. You said the first thing I did was stand up and grab my camera. Yes. For me last year, the first thing I did was stand up and grab my camera. I, 
let him walk through two shooting lanes, completely broadside at, oh, seven to 15 yards. Then to finally get the camera on him and, um, and have a, a way less than optimal shot. Luckily, my deer lived. Um, and that, that really had me thinking, man, it is, I'm so passionate about this. You put all this time and energy into it. And especially when you, when a person is filming themselves, it's like, is it even worth it? Yeah. And, and that's part of the, I mean, that's, that's a, I guess a small part of the reason that I quit doing what I was doing, but I still bring my camera equipment with me, but this year and from now on, uh, if I'm filming myself, the kill for me is more important than getting it caught on, on camera. So I know that you, you know, there's some other motivators there and some other, uh, you know, making a living type of thing, but I don't know. It's filming yourself and every other thing you take into the timber with you can potentially be a distraction. And I'm not talking to you. I'm talking to everybody, you know, from my own experiences. It's a distraction. And if the first thing you're not doing is grabbing your weapon and getting ready to kill, then you have lessened your chances of killing that animal. Yeah, this is a perfect segue into what I wanted to discuss next, which were, you know, taking a look at what mistakes I might have made and those lessons learned. And this was one of the two things I wanted to mention was self-filming. And I've I've had the same types of thoughts that you had after your experience. I'm sitting here and thinking to myself how different things might have been if I didn't have to worry about that damn camera. Yeah. Um, And like you said, there's, there's certain obligations I have to do that. But at the same time, like you said, is it worth it? Do I, I don't know. I'm really thinking about, I I really don't know if I'm going to film my hunts next year or if I am, I just need to find a way to get a cameraman because. And that is the only way when I'm, when I messed up with shipwreck, it was, it was, I grabbed my bow. I looked behind me and to the cameraman, Ryan, and I said, I'm shooting this buck, whether you're ready or not. He came through, I shot him, didn't find him, blah, blah, blah. This past year, I stood up, I grabbed the camera, tried to get it adjusted. He walked through, I tried to get it adjusted again. He walked through 22 yards, hard quartering away, moved it. And it was my, and I shot him on a less than optimal uh, shot. And long, you know, that is, I'm, I'm taking it all back because I was calm. I, I felt I was calm. My bow was sighted in. And, um, I took a very hard shot and that, that, that camera was the reason for my buck last year. Yeah. I think, uh, it's got me really thinking hard about, um, about, about what's most important. And I know there's a lot of people that I think enjoy our videos and I love producing these videos that showcase our hunts and tell our stories. Um, but I just don't think it's worthwhile anymore for me. It's not to potentially lose an opportunity to deer, or more importantly, wound a deer like this. Like in this case, um, I wish I got. It's funny because uh, the last two years I've killed deer, but I've killed them off camera. So mm-hmm. in a couple, I just couldn't get the camera on the deer. So I said, "Screw the camera! I'm taking the shot." Right. 
And I got so much crap from people saying, ah, oh, you got to get your buck on film. You got to get, get one on film finally. Get one, get one on film finally. And even, uh, even like the day of, like this day when I got that shot, I said something um, about going in for Jawburger. And a couple people made comments, well, make sure you get on film this year. And so when he showed up in my head self or subconsciously, I'm thinking, get the camera. You got to get this one on film. Got to get this one on film. And, of course, in this situation where I had such a minimal amount of time between when I saw him to when he was going to leave my opportunity to get a shot, I spent half of it messing around with a stupid camera. Right. Um, so mistake number one was self-filming and uh, spending the precious few seconds I had getting that camera on him. Mistake number two um, came as... as uh, as a part of all of that. So I'm rushing to get this camera on him. Then I have to spin 360 degrees around to get to the other side of the tree, to get my bow off a hanger, to get the deer in my sights before he steps back into this timber. And, um, I have been guilty of this a handful of times. And I think many hunters are, but I need, I just need to continue to get better at it. Um, I think I still rushed the process more than I needed to. Um, to the degree where, you know, it happened so quickly that by the time I was able to get to my, get my bow up. And like I said, I drew back, the peep wasn't open. So now I'm messing around with the peep. By the time all that happened, I finally had a clear sight picture at him. Now he's, he's right next to these branches. And when I I keep on, you know, as all of us do, I keep on looking back at the situation in my head. I keep running it through in my head. What did I see? What was I thinking? You know, how did that go down? What did I do right? What did I do wrong? Um, and I feel like I remember, I just, it happened so fast. I just remember getting my pin settled behind his shoulder and letting it go. But I wish I had taken an extra second or two to take a deep breath, to settle in a little more, to just go through and and just nail down what I had. Because I think I didn't, I didn't do that enough. I, right. I got the pins on him and I let her go. And, it, and all this was because I was so worried I wasn't going to get a shot at him. And I did get a shot at him. Now, maybe I rushed it a little bit there, um, like I said. But another part of my mistake was that in doing that, I did not notice the fact that there were some branches. There, I knew there were branches that he was walking towards. But what I didn't realize is that there was a branch covering his vitals, a small limb that I didn't see. Because later on, when we went and reviewed the footage, a friend of mine put it into an editing program where you could slow it down, slow-mo it really well, and see the arrow's flight and see where it hit. And very clearly in that video, you can see my arrow coming down, and it hits one of those twigs that's sticking out, a small limb. It hits a limb, breaks the limb clear in half, and the arrow deflects down and back. Now, I can't tell you where my arrow would have hit if I didn't hit that limb. Excuse me. But I know that hitting that limb did not help my shot, and I think it definitely pushed it farther back. So that deer might have been dead if I had seen this little twig sticking out there, um, if I would slowed down and focused more on that. So, you know, I'm putting the mistake on myself. Um, you know, maybe I just gotten lucky that that little twig was there. Maybe nine times out of ten I would have got my shot and it would have been fine. This time I hit a limb and um, it didn't go okay. But I don't know, either way, I need to continue to get better at slowing things down in those final seconds. Um, I've killed a lot of deer in my day, but you know, I still need to get better at slowing things down in that final moment of truth because 
there's just no room for error. And yeah. this time that little um a little something came up and nipped me in the butt and it made the difference, I think, between uh between me telling this long sad story and me having uh the <laughs> the most incredible hunt of my life. So yeah. so when I've I've analyzed and looked and thought and rethought and those are the two big things that coming out of this I've identified as, as those mistakes I made and as those areas where I, I need to make some changes or some improvements. Um, so that's where I'm at um, with all of that. I think the kind of final thing I thought we might touch on was some tips and advice for, for moving on from a situation like this. Um, but before I do that, Dan, I guess any other thoughts or questions on the things I just talked about there? No, man. I just, I guess it depends on how serious you are. And it's not saying that me and you are not serious about deer hunting. We have, we try to get, you know, we try to get our, our stuff on film and that's fine. If you want to do that, you got to do that, but you have to understand that there is a cause and effect. And if you're messing around in the tree with something while that deer's in the area, be prepared to put a bad shot or lose that deer or have them bust you and never see him again. So it's just, it's, I don't know. It's, it almost makes me think about the matrix where, where one thing causes another thing. And if you eliminate those problems, I don't know why I said the matrix by the way, but if you, (laughs) if you eliminate all those things, when the time does come, you're going to be more focused. But for you, this was the biggest buck you've ever had an encounter with, right? Yeah, within shooting range. So it, you, you probably had a little bit of buck fever. Is that right? You know, I didn't have to be to be honest. It wasn't so much like I, I, I didn't I didn't have time. I didn't yeah. even have time to think about it. It was it was more so like there's a buck, gotta get a shot, and I I didn't even have time to start freaking out. Yeah. So it wasn't necessarily buck fever. It was just there's so little time. Get the shot. Get on him. Get turned around. He's go, he's about to step behind the trees. Um, it was more of that type of thing. But I I probably I don't think I was I don't remember shaking. I don't remember like going through any of that because I just didn't have enough time. Yeah, for sure, for sure. I know that with the whole shipwreck thing, I uh, I got buck fever real bad, and I think. Part of it had to do with me actually having such a history with that particular deer, knowing it and all that emotion and time and energy that's put in towards an animal kind of all boiled over. Because I've had encounters with other really big deer and didn't and and really didn't get buck fever. Uh, it was more focused on the hunt, and I don't know. And that's a hard thing. And that's that's one of those things where. It's one of the, you know, like you, you hear sports people talk after they hit a home run or make a sack, they, they uh, do the celebrating and sometimes it can go overboard and they say, act like you've been there. And I think that a lot of it has to do is once you do get there, so to speak, you have those encounters with these big deer that you're after, you can, that, that buck fever is definitely beatable. Yeah. I think it, like you said, having those experiences and um you know you can eventually act like you've been there the more experiences you have like that yeah for sure if you're focused on it but to a degree though 
you want to be able to have that feeling still to a degree. Cause if you're not getting super pumped when a big buck walks by, what are you out there for? Mm-hmm. Um, but, but yeah, I, I, for me, I think maybe this is a good way to move on to the last thing I wanted to cover Dan, which was, you know, advice for moving on. How do you move on from something like this? How do you learn from something like this? And for me, you know, three things, I guess, and I'll touch on these real quick. And then I'd like to hear, you know, from, from your perspective, Dan, too. Um, but I wrote a little article for Outdoor Life this week in which I listed the three things that have helped me move on from this situation. And, you know, the first thing was identifying, you know, what that mistake was or what that lesson that you can learn was from from this encounter or that experience. And so I think it's easy to to rerun through it a million times and to think over it a million times and to overanalyze it just over and over and over and there's that natural tendency to do that and I did that too um but after talking to so many people I think that that you need to stop beating yourself up at some point and you need to say okay this happened what's maybe one or two things I can learn from it because if you're going to focus on every single little tiny thing you're going to you're going to beat yourself up and you're not going to be able to take anything from it. So my advice would be to try to identify that one or two things maybe that, that you can work on and that you, you can identify as an area for improvement and then find a way to actually take action on it. So, you know, for me, again, I'm trying to find ways just to slow myself down more in those final seconds. So something really simple I'm going to do, um, but that I think, you know, might help just a little bit. And I've talked about doing this before and I never did it. So this is me needing to take my own advice. Um, but I'm just going to, tape a little thing to the back of my riser that just says slow down and just if I can get a little bit of reality poked into my head in those final 10 seconds or four seconds it just says hey take one more second yeah that might make the difference and so that's one small little way I'm trying to take action and learn from this experience um but I think the most important thing and I think the thing that has helped me the most so far is is do all that but then get back out there um when I was driving home that night after, you know, not being able to find the jawbreaker, I'm driving home and now I'm at the, my lowest point and I, in my head, I'm thinking I'm not going to hunt for weeks. I have no desire to hunt. I don't want to do anything with this. Like the air was completely taken out of my sails. Um, I thought I may not hunt again until November 5th when I went back down to Ohio. So I was considering taking three weeks off of hunting. I was like, screw this. I am, I'm done. This is just, I don't know. I was done. Um, but like three days later, somehow, not even three days later, two days later, um, after talking to a number of people and just, you know, being me, I'm, I'm seeing deer out behind my house. I'm hearing from my buddies that are shooting deer. I kind of got that itch again. I was like, you know, maybe I should get back out there. And long story short, I went back out and hunted a couple times and, um, decided the best therapy might be just to get back out the woods and and get back after it. Um, and I did that and that did make things that did help. Um, it helped to get it back out there, helped just to get back on the path and and moving forward, not dwelling on the past. And, um, another thing I haven't done it yet, but I want to do it is I'd like to shoot a couple does and just kind of get my confidence back, you know, just prove to myself again, Hey, you can do this, go through that experience, go through that process execute it perfectly and kind of get that mojo back. So I was going to suggest that to you is to get out there and go, go swack a doe. 
yeah so that's my plan for the next like three or four or five days is to uh is to get out and do that so i think that's from what i've learned from this experience it would be it'd be those three things you know try to identify a couple lessons then find a way to take real action on it don't just say it actually do something and then finally you know go back out there and and get some hunts under your belt again because it happens to us all, and the only way to uh, to move on from it is to actually start moving down that path again, to start hunting again. So, I don't know. At this short, you know, this um, few days since it's been a week since that's where I'm at. That's what I've kind of learned and taken away from this experience. Um, I'm praying that somehow, maybe, maybe he made it. You know, that that shot after looking at the video, it, it ended up looking like it was farther back than I thought, but lower than I thought too. Um, so I don't know, maybe, I don't know. I I just don't know at this point. I just do not know. So I've got some cameras out there. We're not going back to the property till November 5th. So I'm just crossing all my fingers and toes that maybe by some miracle, maybe that, uh, maybe that shot didn't kill him and maybe he's going to be back and, uh, we'll either live a long and healthy, prosperous life, or maybe I'll get a, get another shot at him. So, I don't know. Do you have any other advice for for moving on from an experience like this, Dan, given your experiences? No, just get back out there. For me, you know, like you said, um, when I wounded my when I wounded my doe, um, unfortunately, I couldn't hunt the rest of the weekend for unseen circumstances. But the next weekend, I got out there again, and everything felt good. Uh, Unfortunately, this year I haven't uh, harvested a, a doe yet. But the previous years after the shipwreck incident, I, I shot a couple of those and I, it, it may it actually made me feel good. So I got my confidence back. Like you said, um, you know, just drawing back on a doe, shooting it, you know, going through your, your unconscious checklist, you know, kiss your button, nose, peep sight, trigger arrows off. Now what? That kind of thing. And it, it, it does help. Yeah, I, I absolutely think so too. So I'm looking forward to in the next couple of days doing that myself. And, uh, now I got a question for you though. Let's hear it. Are you taking your camera back into the tree with you? Ugh, you know, it's funny you mentioned that. Cause when we were having this conversation in my head, I was thinking the same thing. Yeah. And here, here's my issue is, um, I have obligations contractual obligations with my partners that I need to be filming stuff. Okay. So I will be taking the camera out with me for the rest of this year. Yeah. But I do know that if a situation comes where it's a rush, rush situation like this, I'm not going to worry about the camera. So if I get another kill this year, I might not, this might be the third year in a row that I don't get a kill on camera because it's, it's not worth it. I'm not going to wound another deer or make a mistake like this because of that camera. Yeah. So, so that being said, I'll probably have a lot of interviews and B-roll footage. I don't know if I'll have a good kill <laughs> shot. Um, and then next year I'm, I'm really going to do some serious thinking about what I want to do next year. Um, cause, cause next year I can make my, I can make new plans and, um, new agreements and whatnot. And I don't know, it's a, it's a business decision that I need to make for where to hunt. You know, how much do these videos add to what the story we tell mm-hmm. Do people, do people really want them? Are we doing a good enough job to warrant the time and energy and, and 
additional risk that we put into a hunt because of it? Um, I'm not sure what the answer to that question is, but if the answer is yes, we want to continue doing the videos, then I just need to find some way to get someone in the tree with me. Um, because I think, uh, I think me self-filming has an expiration date. So. Right. That's a hundred percent correct. So that's where I'm at. Um, I, I still got a lot to learn. Yeah. You know, I, I beat myself up about this a lot at one point after, uh, after the second tracking dog left on that second day, it was probably six thirty, almost seven o'clock. It was getting dark. It was pouring rain for about an hour. It's been pouring rain. And I was just walking through all those bedding areas, just beating myself up. Like you deserve this. You, <laughs> I, it's kind of funny now, but I was just down. And at one point I just leaned up against a tree and kind of just collapsed next to that tree. I just sat on the ground next to this tree for like 10 minutes, just, just beating myself up and was so upset about the situation. And then eventually was like, you know what? You are an imperfect human. You are an imperfect hunter, but mistakes happen. And you did. Yeah. There's ways you can improve and there's mistakes that, you know, you can learn from, but in the moment I did the best I could in that moment. And that's all you can do is do the best you can in the moment and then learn from it, become better because of it and, uh, and grow. And so that's, that's what I'm going to try to do from this. And I'm sure I'm going to take some heat from people saying, oh, you made a bad shot. How already on Facebook, people were, you know, saying, oh, how could you take such a shameful shot? Blah, blah, blah. Um, and you know, there's always going to be critics out there. <laughs> I love those people. I know, but I'm, I'm not going to let, uh, you just have to work through it yourself and, and, and work to get better. So that's what I'm well, going to do. I Googled five stages of grief just now, and uh, you've gone through your denial and isolation. You've gone through your anger. You've gone through your bargaining. You've gone through your depression, and it sounds to me like you're you're covering, as we speak, the fifth and final stage, which is acceptance, and after that, I, it's all gravy. Good. <laughs> so you're good to go. All right. Well, I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> Like, like I said, I definitely, the last week have, have come a long way. So yeah, for sure. at this point now I'm getting re-excited about the season again. And, uh, I don't know. I've still, even though a lot of people I've talked to said based on the point of impact and where that shot went in, there's a really good chance he didn't make it. I'm an eternal optimist and I've got, I got a flicker of hope and, uh, I well, can't, if, I cannot wait to get back down there. Yeah give that property some time. Cause it sounds like you did a lot of damage walking through it and yeah. hopefully it recovers uh, for the rest of the year. Yeah. We're going to get down there. Uh, that's well, November 5th or 6th. So it'll be about two and a half weeks of rest. We'll give it. And by then hopefully the rut will be kicking and we'll, um, we'll be able to see some bucks moving through there and, and maybe the old boy will be back himself. So, so that's where it's at. And now I'm, uh, next week we're going to talk about my plans for the next week and a half because I'm kind of thinking through some crazy ideas, Dan. I'm kind of throwing caution to the wind and maybe going to be going to some brand new states, going to be changing my plans, doing some what? wild. Yeah, doing I'm some... supposed to be the crazy one of this team, <laughs> not you. I know. I'm kind of flying by the seat of my pants these days, so <laughs> we'll uh, we'll cover that at another date. But um, I think it's getting to, getting to be time here. So, Dan, is there anything else we need to cover? Good luck. To me? Yeah. To you, to to everybody who's listening, uh, good luck the rest of the season, and uh, I hope that uh, 
I hope everybody kills giants this year, except the other guys that hunt on my property. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah. yeah, no, that's that's a great way to to close things out. I too hope everyone is is having an awesome season so far and, and will continue to do so. And man, it is about to get crazy. Like the best part of the season is just ahead of us. So yep. I'm pretty stoked. I'm not gonna lie. <laughs> my daughter pulled this out of my pack. So here's the good luck go bleep for the rest of the season. Nice. You've been just dying to use that, haven't you? <laughs> yeah, I saw it. I'm just like, I gotta wait for the perfect opportunity because if I if I do this like right in the the heartfelt moments of you telling your jawbreaker story, it would have lost all of its uh <laughs> it would have. Yeah. Oh man. Okay. Good. Let's good. let's let's cut it down. Let's Let, get out of here. Let's do it. All right. Then um before we do that though, Dan, I do want to take a quick second to again just thank everyone out there in the Wired Hunt Nation, you know, for all the support everyone gave me last week. Um I got so many phone calls and emails, messages, comments on Facebook. Um so many people giving me advice, wishing me luck, etc. So just Huge, huge thank you to all of you listeners and readers and viewers. Um, that meant the world to me. And also as an FYI, be sure to check back on Wired to Hunt and our YouTube channel over the next week or two as we will be putting out a couple videos detailing this hunt and this whole story I just told. So look for that. That said, bringing things to a close here. As always, if you've been enjoying the podcast, we really appreciate it if you'd leave us a rating or review on iTunes. We've got 93 awesome reviews so far, and it helps out so much. So thank you. Finally, we'd like to thank our partners who helped make this show possible. So big thank you to Sitka Gear, Trophy Ridge, Bear Archery, Redneck Blinds, Carbon Express Arrows, Huntsoft, Lacrosse Boots, Big and J Long Ridge Attractants, and the Whitetail Institute of North America. That all said, thank you all for being here with us today and for bearing with me through this little therapy session. I hope you've had an incredible hunting season so far. And, you know, if things are getting tough for you, you know, maybe you can do what I've done. If you're at the end of the rope, tie a knot and hang on. So good luck to all of you out there and stay wired to hunt.